This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 5th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona, and we're into June, which means in Phoenix, it's going to get much hotter very soon. And for the rest of you, maybe you consider this the time of year when the weather actually is nicest for the year. So if so, enjoy it. Uh, you know, we'll talk again in winter about how things work. But let's talk about what we're looking at this week. This week, we have three cases, two from courts of appeal, one from the tax court, deciding a couple of interesting issues that I think we want to kind of discuss the importance of. We're going to look first at the Fourth Circuit opinion in an area that you may not see often, but it does come up. We've seen a few cases in this area recently, and it's just something to keep your eye on. If you have any C corporation closely held clients, we have this problem of reasonable compensation, which is the complete opposite of a reasonable compensation uh, kind of fight between taxpayers and the IRS that we see in an S corporation context. And the Fourth Circuit this this week issued a decision where they specifically disagreed with the implications of a 2009 case issued by the Seventh Circuit in the Menard Inc. case and found that, in fact, you don't just test to see whether there is a reasonable return to investors in deciding if your C corporation's salary can be justified, but rather must look at the other factors to some extent discussed in the regulations. We'll also talk about the Eleventh Circuit this week. Uh, made a decision in an area that they found to, I guess, their surprise that a court, no court of appeal had ever really looked at this issue before. But the question becomes, where do you deduct on a Form 1040 expenses when it is found that your activity is covered by Section 183, that is an activity not entered into for a profit motive, or what we tend to call it is the hobby loss rules. And while the answer they give is the answer we've seen before and the answer the IRS tends to give, uh, this formally agreed that that's the proper answer. Although we did have a little bit of a split inside the actual panel, the three judge panel that heard the case about why that's the proper decision. They, they both decided it's proper to treat them as miscellaneous sized deductions, but we'll talk about the differences in the two and why I'm not terribly thrilled with the concurring opinion. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that, why I like the majority opinion much better in this case. And finally, we're going to look at the case of an elderly attorney who had an issue closing down his law practice and where the tax court reviewed what the IRS had decided he didn't deserve to get out of penalties for the most part for late filing of payroll tax returns and late payment of the payroll taxes. And the fact pattern is one that really in many ways is kind of textbook when your client won't win the case. But it's an interesting case because it shows that there were enough other facts in this case uh, that essentially explained away the types of things that normally are fatal to getting out of a, you know, an IRS claim that you essentially didn't properly, you know, try to comply with the law. You didn't, you didn't have reasonable cause for late filing, or you didn't operate with essentially neglect in allowing that to happen. So let's go first to the case of Clay Hood, Inc. versus Commissioner. Case number 221573 from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals that came down on May 31st of this year. Now, this is a case where if you have an I, if the IRS on a C Corp does look at this issue differently than an S. The question we're going to have here is whether Mr. Hood in getting paid some significant amounts at the end of the two years in question, whether he in fact had unreasonably high compensation. And the reason for that is because under 162, your compensation is deductible to the corporation only to the extent that it is a reasonable payment for services actually rendered. Now, technically, that's the same rule for a C-Corp and an S-Corp, but the biases work a little differently here. Remember, for a C-Corp, the bias is normally because if it gets no deduction and you pay that out as a dividend, then there's going to be a tax at the individual level with no corresponding deduction at the C-Corp level. And I will tell you that this case involved years before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. 
So essentially, we were looking at tax rates well above the 21% rate. So that's kind of an issue to deal with here. And why in this case, there's a, there was a definite bias for the corporation to pay out as much salaries as possible to have the C-Corp avoid paying tax, which then would lead to a double tax later when he tries to cash out. But also then flip side of that, the IRS wanting this to be as high as possible or to be basically as low as possible and treat a good chunk of that as a dividend. So as I noted, the bias here is just dead opposite to what we see for S corporations. It's a different world we operate in. Now, in this case, the owner even admitted that for the years in question, they underwent a study of his prior salaries. A new CFO came in and took a look at his prior salaries and came to the conclusion to be undercompensated. But he pointed out that a major reason for the change in how Mr. Hood was being compensated here for the last two years was because of tax issues that related to getting ready for a change in future circumstance, likely a change in ownership. I suspect Mr. Hood was getting ready to leave the company. Uh, he wanted to take the money that had been accumulated in the company over the years out. He didn't want to pay the extra tax, so he wanted to be able to reduce, not pay more tax at the corporate level. So essentially, yeah, we, we were trying to bail out the earnings is kind of what he admitted, which turns out to be a really bad admission. And that particular admission really did hurt Mr. Hood in this case. It's probably a really good example of why we don't want to let our clients normally talk to the IRS. In this case, probably they had no major choice. It's just more of a, you know, how, was the client made aware of statements they would make on the stand that could be negative, shall we say, in nature. And so just flippantly saying, oh yeah, we did this because of tax planning, uh, might not be the best thing to say here. We're just gonna phrase it that way. And so it's one of those things, it's also one of those things that you definitely wanna make sure that you're not, um, in essence, leaving things at that level in correspondence and other issues there. Remember, we're trying to establish the compensation is for services actually rendered, not, comp not a salary being paid in order to get the best payroll tax uh, result at the end of the day. That could be a bad result. And uh, turned out in this case, it wasn't gonna work out well. Now, the company history was, it was founded as a C corporation in 1980. Um, and Mr. Hood and his wife each owned 50% of the stock. So basically, they were the only owners of the company. They also were the members of the board of directors. He served as a CEO. Obviously, they ended up setting Mr. Hood's salary every year, right? So in essence, from 2000 to 2010, it had $21 million of revenue and earning an average of less than $1 million each year in net income before taxes. Uh, in 2011, he seeked to, to basically increase revenue, took various uh, steps to do so. Revenue immediately increased, and by 2015, the revenue had grown to 44 million, by 2016 to 69 million, and net income shot up as did cash and cash equivalent, right? It also went from 80 employees in 2011 to about 150 employees. So now this company has been operating for these years, and now instead of having, you know, built up, let's say, or accumulated, earnings of less of a million or less every year and then paid the tax on that. Now we're accumulating much, much larger amounts of money. That money's inside the company. And as I noted, we're getting where it appears Mr. Hood probably is considering, could be passing on the next generation. It could be selling the company. It could be many things, but Mr. Hood would like to get the money out of the company, right? Now the tax court did recognize that Mr. Hood as CEO his contributions were, you know, mainly responsible for the success of the company. And that was important. They said, yes, we recognize that he made big contributions to the success of the company. Now, during the fiscal year that ended May 31st of 2015, uh, and it just had huge growth in that period, the CFO began an assessment of the past compensation and concluded that in prior years, Mr. Hood had been undercompensated. To determine how much to compensate for 2015 years or thereafter, he sought the advice of the company's accountants at their accounting firm, right? So at this particular issue, um, the, as I said, the record's not clear as to what extent Mr. Hood participated in this assessment. 
But as they said, the tax court noted, Mr. Hood later acknowledged, he was aware that he needed to start making necessary preparations for, from an income tax perspective in getting money out of the company in anticipating of a changing of the guard. Okay, that's probably not a good thing to have the courts highlighting either the tax court in the original decision or the circuit court in the appeal. That's going to be a bad thing they're highlighting, that, that this was a tax-motivated payment. After meeting with the company's accountants, the CFO determined that he'd been undercompensated since 2000. The total amount that would remedy this past undercompensation and recognize Mr. Hood's service for 2015 years would be $7.1 million. Okay. Um, they suggested he takes a $5 million bonus to 2015, some of which was to remedy his past undercompensation with the balance of the compensation to be paid in future years. The company's accountants gave their approval to this. You know, they are, you know, they're apparently um, competent, right? No reason to doubt their ability to help in this analysis. Uh, and, you know, they, they've had the tax experience and the, the accounts company's been using for years. So seems like a good trusted source to look at when you're doing this, right? So accordingly, at the meeting of Hood Inc.'s board of directors, which, remember, are the two owners of the company who are married to each other, they approved paying the $5 million bonus in addition to a standard $168,559 salary for the year. And, you know, and it's the minutes recognized that it was approved in recognition of Mr. Hood's many years of sacrificial work done for the company, right? And the following year, they went through the same process for turning the bonus to 2015, uh, as board members, they approved a bonus of $5 million for 2016, in addition to his standard salary, which in 2016 was $196,500. Right. The court notes, this is also not a good thing to have a court ever note for you in one of these decisions. Uh, Hood Inc. did not consider paying any dividends to its shareholders, and in fact, it had never paid any. So in neither year did they consider paying dividends, and they never actually paid any dividends in the entire history of the company. And, and as I can tell you, being somebody who's in practice before the 1986 Tax Act, yes, I go back that far, uh, these would always be very, very, very bad statements to find in a case that the IRS was bringing, which we had a lot of prior to the 86 Tax Act because we had a lot of C-Corps and very, very, very few S-Corps in a closely held companies. At th these would all be bad signs if the court was reciting these issues in your decision. It's still a bad sign when they recite this issue. Now we have the IRS challenge in the battle of the experts. Now the IRS's expert did agree Mr. Hood was undercompensated for the period of 2000 to 2012, but found that he had started to remedy his compensation beginning with his payments of $1.4 million in 2013. He surveyed compensation paid to other executives, the specific characteristics of this company and Mr. Hood's contribution. He concluded in his report that Mr. Hood was undercompensated by appropriately by approximately $2.3 million in May 31st, 2014. And taking this to account, as well as interest on that amount, he included total reasonable compensation would be $3,681,269 for 2015 and $1,362,831 for 2016. Then any amount above those figures can constitute excess or reasonable compensation. I should say, as we'll discover later, uh, the IRS expert did agree that this person should be paid in the 99th percentile of executives in similar companies. In essence, he should be right at the top of the payment scale. Okay. But he said, even taking that into account, the amount of his payments, given the size of the company, earnings, etc., should still not be what he'd been paid. There would be a substantial amount of dividend that was part of that number. Okay. Now, the company submitted two expert reports, but the tax courts afforded them little to no weight based on dubious assumptions underlying the report and the lack of supporting calculations. They weren't happy with the taxpayers' experts. Now, I think part of this problem may be we are not told, really, in essence, and I didn't go back and check the tax court case, but, you know, was the accounting firm one of those people that provided the expert reports? And that can cut both ways. If they're not, then we begin to get into a, well, they, they were your experts that set this number and they didn't come in and defend it. Uh, but if they were, then there's a theory that, yeah, but they, they, they were because you told us the motivation here was tax related. So they're, they're not going to be a good party to do this anyway. So 
I think the accounting firm was going to be a problem either way in this situation once the admission was on the table that this was being done for primarily tax planning purposes. That was going to be a problem. Now, as I said in what the, again, this is not a good line you're going to hear from the Court of Appeals when you lost a tax court, in its thorough 64-page opinion, again, that's not a good line because that sounds like they're going to back the tax court, which, by the way, they did. The tax court, for the most part, there is one thing they won't. They accepted Fuller's calculations, so that's found the amount of deductibles reasonable compensation were that exact amount. Now, one thing they did, the IRS, of course, said, well, it's more than 20% of the tax due. That's a substantial understatement. By definition, under Section 6662, if you owe more than, in essence, 20%, in essence, your, your, your payment is more than say, 10% of the tax properly due, on the return, or $5,000, whichever is less, and believe me, this was way above $5,000, then you owe a 20% penalty. So 20, you owe a penalty equal to 20% of that tax. And you can only escape that penalty if you can show that your, you know, you either have to show the position had, uh, you know, substantial authority. This is a factual case. You're not going to get there. Or reasonable basis. And again, probably not going to get there. Again, it's made of a factual case. So it's difficult to show those in factual because these both look at the law and with these facts, the problem is nobody's disagreeing what the law is. Everybody's disagreeing on what the facts are, you know, how the facts apply to the law, which it's not impossible to argue for this relief or for reasonable basis or substantial authority, but it's difficult because, you know, the courts are going to find, well, the facts support X or you can take this into account, et cetera, et cetera. So they're going to find bad application of the law. Secondly, if you're losing in tax court, it's going to be difficult to find substantial authority. I will say, had it been disclosed, reasonable basis, that tends to work more often than not because the burden's on the IRS then because you'd made the disclosure, and now the burden goes back to the IRS who has to show the position had no reasonable basis under the law. And obviously there are some that don't, but you might be able to argue this one or that, but we're going to presume they didn't attach the disclosure because nothing's mentioned about it in there. But the tax court decided that they had reasonable cause in 2015 because they had relied on the accountants in 2015. But in 2016, they decided that really there wasn't a brand new study done, brand new work. So the, ta so the tax court position was they hadn't shown they'd relied on the accountants for setting the 2016 bonus. And so because of that, they imposed the 20% penalty on the taxes due for 2016. Now, as we said, so our total deficiency uh, was $550,000 for 15 and $1,411,991 for 16. Remember, 16 is a year getting the penalty. That means the 20% penalty for 16 was $282,398. If you're going to get out of one of these two penalties, you'd prefer to gotten out of year two, not, not year one. Okay. Now, reasonable compensation under IRC section 162A, the payment must be for personal services actually rendered. That's the way it's worded. You can have a deduction for reasonable amounts of compensation paid for services actually rendered. That's how 162A reads. And again, it's the same for C-Corps or S-Corps. It doesn't change. Now, the regulations that describe that under 162 indicate that you're supposed to look at the reasonableness of compensation under all the circumstances, and it lists a number of factors that you should be looking at. That's the way it works. Now, the taxpayer argued the court should use a single reasonable return to a hypothetical independent investor based on a 2009 Seventh Circuit decision in the case of Menard, Inc., now, the Menard decision, for those of you in the Midwest, mainly, I think Menard's mainly in the Midwest, maybe it's in a few other places. I know it's not in Arizona, uh, but Menard's, yeah, the, the home improvement store. John Menard had a case that made it to the courts in the late, to, to, in the late, late part of the first decade of this century. And John Menard had taken a really, really big bonus. Okay, and, you know, the IRS came in and said, Nope, that, that, that's unreasonable comp because Menard was a C corporation. 
and the IR and the courts ruled, the Seventh Circuit did, essentially in a decision written by Judge Posner, who was always an entertaining decision writer, you know, until he left the court in 2017, he always wrote entertaining decisions, shall we say. Even if they were somewhat, they tended to be somewhat caustic, you know, and kind of painted very similarly to what sometimes you'd see uh, former Supreme Court Justice Anton Scalia write a decision and be very caustic about it, which kind of indicated the rest of the world were idiots. <laughs> it's, I mean, it doesn't say, but it certainly implies. So he wrote a decision where he totally blasted this concept of having this weighting of the factors, saying, well, that's crazy. You know, it's, it's just random. And then you're supposed to somehow magically in your head come up with how these factors, which ones are important, which ones aren't, and then magically come to a decision. He said that that's unreasonable. He determined that what was reasonable was to look at whether there was a reasonable investor. Now, and he strongly implied the decision that was the only factor that should matter. And he's not, the Seventh Circuit in this area was not the only court to say so. As I recall, a couple of Ninth Circuit decisions strongly implied that this was the key factor. May not have gone quite as far as, you know, Judge, Judge Posner did in writing the decision in Menard to suggest that none of the others would ever matter and you're an idiot if you think they do, but certainly implied that this was the key test. Now, I should point out one thing that I think you have to understand about the Menard case is John Menard had way better, way better facts on all the other issues we're going to discuss here than did the taxpayer in Hood. So I think at the end of the day, the, you know, this court would have come down with the same decision in the Menard case as the Seventh Circuit did. The result would have been identical. John Menard's bonus would have been sustained. But, you know, the taxpayer now is trying to use the Menard decision to say, hey, look, because he did so well and so great, even with these huge bonuses the last two years, an independent investor who bought into this thing early on, you know, would have had a rate of return on the value of his shares, because it certainly would have been due to dividends because he didn't pay any, but on the value of shares that they would never have complained about paying him this money. So that's what the taxpayers argued. Now, the Fourth Circuit wants to make it very clear they reject that view that only the independent investor test matters. They do admit that that's a, that that's a test you should consider and that it does go you know, to tell us about how this works. But unlike the Seventh Circuit decision that suggested it was the only thing, or even, frankly, some of the Ninth Circuit decisions that suggested it was the, you know, it, it really was the overwhelmingly major factor, this decision said, nope, you've got to consider the other issues. And you can't just ignore the issues when you get here. Okay. So as the court said here, solely using that test to establish presumption of reasonableness as the taxpayer urges would be too narrow in light of the regulatory demand that we considered what is reasonable under all the circumstances. They're, so they're going to go to the regulation and state that, you know, the IRS has authority here. They write regulations and under current Supreme Court doctrine. And again, you know, and this probably would have to go beyond even if they overturned the Chevron deference. They'd have to really go deep down the deference line to get here because Chevron talked about things that essentially go all the way down to non-regulatory guidance of an agency. Um, but under the current ruling, which goes back to the um, Mayo Foundation case, which says that as long, you know, if there is ambiguity in the code and if the IRS issues a regulation that gives a reasonable uh, kind of selection or determination of how that ambiguous clause should be applied, that essentially that has the force of law. So they're saying, look, we have to because it's, because they're saying considering all the circumstances is, seems to them be a reasonable interpretation of 162A, right? Um, you know, you know, they, they said, because under the independent investor test, executive compensation would be presumed to be reasonable, even if it exceeded the amount that was generally compensation for personal services actually rendered. And this is where they go back and link it to the code. That, that's kind of turning the knife a bit. Um, you know, reverse uh, coming back to the Seventh Circuit decision. Because again, they're, they're saying it would be contrary to the statute 
if we ignored that, because by ignoring that, we're paying no attention to the, to the part of the statute that says a payment for services actually rendered. You know, and it, or that would be ordinarily paid for the services, for like services by like enterprises under the circumstances, which is the regulation topic. They said, by contrast, the multi-factor test allows for consideration of the numerous other relevant factors. So they said, end of day, we're not going to overturn the tax court because they didn't rely solely on the independent investor test, which the court's not going to contend that it wouldn't be in a good return. They're just going to contend you can't stop there. Okay. So they also found the tax court properly applied other factors. And there were a number of things that worked badly for this taxpayer. First, the company had never, did not consider paying a dividend in these two years and had never actually ever paid a dividend in its entire history. This was generally considered a bad fact in this case or in, or basically in the unreasonable accumulations of earnings cases, right? The accumulated earnings tax. So never paying a dividend, that's a problem. There was no structured system for owner compensation. Now, let me stop first. In Menard, Menard Inc. had paid dividends. That's, that's you know, that, that's brought out even, you know, even, uh, you know, the Seventh Circuit decision and Judge Posner's decision for the majority, or for actually the unanimous decision, uh, you know, points out that they had paid dividends. There was no structured system in Heard for owner compensation. There was in Menard. And again, that opinion that told us these other factors didn't matter still mentioned these factors. Okay, so it was like, yeah, they don't matter, but we're going to mention them, which is always kind of interesting. And compensation was not in line with comparable executives. The amount allowed was in the 99th percentile. The IRS was going to allow that level, and he was way above that level. Now, the IRS did argue that in John Menard's case, but turns out the passage of time worked to his advantage here. The, you know, as Judge Posner pointed out, you know, a few years later, after the year in question for, for Menard, and after apparently the IRS had started this case, uh, the CEO of Home Depot ended up with a, you know, with a what's going to be compensation that was, as I recall, six times what John Menard took out. And since, you know, Home Depot was not six times the size of Menard, you know, and certainly didn't have six times the earnings or return level of Menards. I, you know, the, you know, Judge Posner said, well, these things vary so much. You're comparing this guy to public company CEOs. And he also pointed out there are other CEOs, uh, famously, usually the CEO of Apple. As I recall, I believe still Tim Cook does this. You know, Steve Jobs did it for years. Quote, only gets $1 of compensation, but gets all these stock options. And they're saying, well, you know, would you tell me the $1 was there for you know, what you're going to have to do because public company CEOs take $1. Um, so basically they went after that. But again, in this case, all of those went against this taxpayer. They had nothing like Menard had. That's what's key here. And so even though, according to the Menard decision, all of those facts were irrelevant. Note, all those facts were way better for John Menard than they were for Clay Hook. Now, what they did find was the tax court had improperly found penalty relief only applied for a single year, right? Now, th this panel allowed the credit, so they struck that $280,000 penalty by saying, look, they had relied on professional advice for both years. It had been decided in the initial consultation that the, you know, that, that the back compensation would be paid out over multiple years, that that was decided at that time and that based on that was how the compensation got set for the second year in question. They said, so tax court, if you're going to grant that they properly relied on the professional for year one, there's nothing in the record that supports your belief that somehow they didn't for year two. So the court turned around and did this. Now, let's talk about this case because it does have a practical issue here. And this is something we sometimes get into in tax research. This case is textbook, I believe, or likely. This seems to be likely what happened. It appears that the taxpayer and their advisors got so focused on Judge Posner's decision and how Judge Posner wrote the decision in the Menard case, which I will remind you, this they were not going to go to the Seventh Circuit. 
So even if the Seventh Circuit were to say that effectively, you know, that opinion means this is all we consider in this circuit, that's great, but you don't get to go there. So unless they picked up and moved before, you know, this case came to light, and so they end up in Chicago instead of in, I believe they're in Northern Virginia, um, we need to be somewhere different. That'd be a problem. Number two, obviously, um, you had to realize the way the opinion was written, it probably was overstating the position intentionally ju just to make the point of how absurd it was because all of these factors really went in John Menard's favor. The only one against him was comparable salary and you were using that to override everything. And if you read the opinion that way, which I think really is how it works, except for the fact that, you know, we just go down this other path. Um, yeah, it, it, it seems like other circuits might read differently. I don't think it's surprising that the fourth circuit went this way. I think other circuits can go, could go this direction. We know there have been variations even before in the past about how the different circuits viewed this. So yeah, basing everything on the one Menard case, great, but you know, you have to realize that when you go to court, if you're not going to the seventh circuit, that the IRS may decide to dig in and try to get a decision in your circuit, which could get very expensive in terms of legal fees to defend. So one of those things difficult, right? Um, again, it's not that it didn't make sense to go for this here. It might have. It obviously had support. It obviously was something that the, you know, the tax court felt, you know, had enough support that they were going to grant reasonable basis, that it wasn't so absurd. The taxpayer should have known that the advice from the from the accounting firm couldn't be correct. But it does suggest, you know, be careful here of running too far with your case. Uh, too often in tax research, I see people, you know, look at whatever they're looking at. And as soon as they find something that appears to support the answer they want, pretty much stop looking. Always consider if I was on the other side, if this was an S corporation, the IRS was coming in and using John Menard against me, you know, and saying, look, it's got to be reasonable return. Reasonable return would be, you know, 20% per year. So his salary should be at least up to that high enough to get the return to 20%. You know, would I be so apt to just say, oh yeah, that's obviously the way you set reasonable comp or would I argue against it? I know about you, I'm probably going to argue against it, right? And I'm probably going to spend a lot of time on the thing that, you know, Judge Posner ridiculed about comparing to comparable salaries. Right? I'm going to go kind of the other direction there. And I'm going to reference it's for services actually performed, not for growth from the investment standpoint. So yeah, take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Okay, let's talk about the Gregory case here. This comes from the 11th Circuit, case number 2210707, and this came down on May the 30th. Let's talk about the Gregory case. Now, this is a case where the taxpayer operated a yacht that they claimed was a business. By the time we're in front of the 11th Circuit, we're no longer arguing whether or not this thing is covered by Section 183. It was an activity not engaged in for a profit. Okay, we've conceded that's true. Now, they did get revenue from operating their yacht, but yachts, you know, from people renting the yacht, doing whatever for the yacht, being taken on the yacht. But yachts are expensive to run. And, you know, the revenues coming in did not cover the cost of the yacht. So there were big losses. And, okay, everybody now agrees that that's there. So it's covered by 183. Under 183, the deductions would be limited um, to the amounts that would have been allowed had this been a true trader business, right, with a profit motive. But, but only to the extent of the gross income. So if let's say we had gross income from our activity of $200,000 and we had deductions that would normally have been allowed of $500,000, we're only going to be allowed to take $200,000 of deductions as allowed by Section 183B of the Code. But the question becomes, what type of deduction is it? And that's important because there are options here, right? So we know it's a deduction but we don't know where to put it on their 1040 because we put deductions lots of places on the 1040. Deductions or exclusions. 
So for instance, under section 108, if we have a cancellation of debt and the taxpayer's insolvent, then we just take that gross income, which, rep, which is what's represented by the cancellation of debt, and we reduce it by the insolvency amount, and we use that to actually exclude it from gross income. We may go ahead and take deductions from gross income in computing AGI separately. So we don't reduce gross in, we don't basically offset gross income at the, at the top level. We still recognize the entire gross income, but what we turn around and do is claim deductions. And we might put those on Schedule C, Schedule E, right? Schedule C for a trade or business, Schedule E, let's say for our rentals and royalties, uh, could be down in the adjustments to income section like IRA, deductible IRA contributions, SEP contributions, those sorts of things. Those go above the line, right? We call that above the line deductions. Or it could end up as an itemized deduction. And even there, itemized deductions go into two categories. It could be an itemized deduction that goes specifically onto various lines on Schedule A, or it could fall into the broad category of miscellaneous itemized deductions that prior to the Tax, tax Cuts and Jobs Act were subject to a 2% of AGI limitation. So the question becomes, what type of deduction are the ones allowed under Section 183B? Where do they get reported? So let's talk about general rules for how we determine where to either use something as an exclusion from income or whether to use it as a deduction. If a deduction doesn't go above the line, below the line, and if it's itemized below the line, does it you know, end up as below the line as a regular itemized deduction? or is it a miscellaneous itemized deduction? Okay. Now, IRC section 61 defines gross income very broadly. Now you'll find that some code sections tell us that certain things are to be excluded from gross income, like gifts, or you know that 108 for certain cancellations of indebtedness, or the gain you might've had from a 1031 exchange is excluded from the income, right? So we have income exclusions that come into play. So sometimes, we have something that's gross income, like let's say municipal bond interest, but we just exclude it there. Now we're not deducting it. You don't claim municipal bond interest generally on form 1040 and then subtract it out. That might be how you show your schedule be a lot of our tax software likes to, but essentially, no, it's just excluded from income. Now we do have to report it separately for information purposes because it affects the computation of how much of our social security is going to be in income. Another case where we end up having a portion of it can be excluded from gross income for section 61. But that's how we can do it. Section 62 lists very specifically, go read the section. It tells us specifically deductions that we can claim in arriving at adjusted gross income. So what we call above the line deductions, things not, or, so this is things like section 162 deduction for trader business expenses, not conducted as an, a trader business as an employee, it includes uh, rental and uh, rental and royalty expenses are in there. It includes those above. It includes those IRA deductions for deductible IRAs. It includes those SEP contributions, right? It includes HSA contributions, uh, the penalties you pay for you know premature for penalties paid when you cash in your CD too early. All of those are listed there on Section 62 as deductions in arriving at you know from gross income. So they're in that mix. Then finally, section 67 lists the itemized deductions that aren't considered miscellaneous deductions. And then everything else is miscellaneous. So here's the catch. By default, this is the big thing to watch here because this becomes a huge issue for this case. By default, all deductions start out essentially as miscellaneous itemized deductions on an individual return. And only if they are rescued by the section itself telling us to put it somewhere else. Like, you know, section 108 says this is an exclusion from gross income or they're rescued by section 62 saying they use in computing AGI or section 67 saying that like charitable contributions are a deduction that's not considered a miscellaneous deduction. Uh, they end up in the miscellaneous deduction category. So that is the default category. Important thing to understand. And that's mechanically how the law works which I think is also really important to understand. Okay. Now, 
Section 183B itself does not, you know, like Section 108 told us it's an exclusion. We don't include in gross income and specifically references gross income. 183B doesn't comment on what you do. It just tells us we're going to allow a deduction that is essentially equal to the amount of deduction you would have gotten had this been a for-profit trader business under Section 162. We're going to allow it to you not under 162, but under Section 183. Now, the 11th Circuit note that no court of appeals had previously looked at this issue, although we're going to find out that, you know, Congress actually commented on the Tax Courts and Jobs Act uh, Conference Committee report. Uh, the IRS had taken the position multiple times, and so had the so had lower courts that these were miscellaneous itemized deductions. But a court of appeals had never ruled on this issue, neither has the Supreme Court. This is going to be the first time a court of appeals was going to actually rule on this issue. So that's came in. Now, according to the analysis of the majority of the panel, right? So this case has a majority opinion, which is the one that really controls everything. And then they have a concurring opinion. Concurring opinions arrive at the same result, but don't agree with the actual analysis that got to that result. They differ in some form. Sometimes they also just emphasize a matter. This one will differ in how we get at the result. So that's important to understand. Now, according to the two of the three judges, the majority, in essence, the language of the statute settles the question. Now, we discussed this. In, in fact, they cite a case here we've discussed before. We were discussing the no living relative issue for the employee retention credit, going back to Connecticut National Bank versus Germain, where essentially we say, you know, we assume that the, you know, the code says what it means and means what it says. Congress is presumed to do that. If the statute answers the question, that is the end of the analysis per uh, what was going to be Justice Thomas's uh, majority opinion. Actually, I think it was unanimous opinion in the Connecticut National Bank case. That's, that's where we do it. If it's clearly answered by the statute, Congress clearly spoke to the issue, we're done. Unless that statute's unconstitutional, th this thing is done, right? We're going to follow what the statute says, not caring what the, you know, what the uh, non-government person says, the non-government party the lawsuit says, or what the government party says. We're just going to apply the law as written, right? And they did note that the statutory provisions are not written in isolation, which I think is going to be important here. So, it doesn't have to be in section 183 per this part of the case, per this, for the majority, as long as the law somewhere tells us the answer to this question. Okay. Now, they're saying three provisions in 183 are relevant to the analysis. So first, section 183A prohibits all hobby loss deductions except for those allowed by 183B. So they're saying this tells us the deductions are allowed by 183B. So these are deductions under 183B, right? So an activity not engaged in for profit, we block all deductions under this chapter, which is the income tax chapter, chapter one, unless it's allowed by 83B. Okay. Then the second issue here, let me see if I got this right. Uh, grants activities not engaged for profits, hobbies, the same deductions allowable under this chapter without regard to whether or not such activity is engaged in for profit. Now, this will turn out to be on a secondary argument of the taxpayer, an argument of the taxpayer, uh, I guess primary taxpayer. They're going to say that this means, you know, what this means. Is this deduction allowed under 183 or is it allowed under 162? And that's actually a fairly important issue. And then third, they said, and this is what they thought dispute, section 183b2 allows the deduction equal to set amount of deductions allowable in this chapter only if such activity were engaged in for a profit. The amount of the deduction cannot exceed the difference between the hobby's gross income and deductions allowed under 183b1. Thus, the law caps a 183b2 deduction at the amount of the hobby's gross income minus the deductions allowed under 183b1. So the key factor here, which this part of the panel focuses on, is while 183 itself did not answer these questions, uh, rather you take a look at the underlying provisions of one of 62, 63, and 67. I should say actually be 61, 62, and 67. Yeah. 
I love it. Yeah, they kind of got that weirdly in there. Let's, or it is 6263. 626367, right? Those provisions establish that they are below the line and must succeed 2% of the taxpayer's income for the year in question. That's going to be their point. Now, the key issue here is they're saying that essentially these are deductions. And because these are 1A3 deductions, which are which themselves don't assign themselves to a category, that they're going to go through, they're going to fall through the hoops because section 62. You know, we don't treat them as a reduction of gross income. Certainly, 762 doesn't say they're excluded from gross income. Actually, doesn't seem to exclude anything, as I recall. Section 63 does not say you get a deducted in, you know, in a computing AGI. Never mentions Section 183. And neither does Section 67. So it's not going to be an itemized deduction other than miscellaneous. And that makes it a miscellaneous itemized deductions that would have been a subject to the 2% floor. Now, the court mentions in this case that 2% of their income would be more than the gross income of the uh, yacht activity. So by definition, they would get no benefit as 2% deductions. They also point out in passing that since the law changed back in 1987, that today nobody gets any benefit from this. It doesn't matter if they're more than 2% of your adjusted gross income because Congress under 67G temporarily got rid of these entirely, okay? Now, the taxpayer claimed that 1A3B did tell us where to put this, right? They claimed this was merely a framework and it served to reduce the 162 deduction, but not eliminate it. So their claim is going to be, these are still trader business deductions under 162 and they're allowed to go on Schedule C. That's essentially what they're arguing for. Now, the majority opinion says the reference to 162 merely serves as a calculation number to determine how much you'll deduct under 183. They consider 183 to be the deduction portion, not 162. My own take is this is probably the best argument the taxpayer had to claim that there was ambiguity here. And because of that ambiguity, was the deduction allowed under 162 or 183? Is this a limit on 162 deductions? Or is this a calculation of 1A3 deductions? And that, again, because section the way section 63 is written, that's a big question, which one it is. Because if it is a 162 deduction, it would go above the line if it related to a trader business. Now, I think one key flaw in this is, which is going to be a problem, I think, for their argument is, but if there's not a profit motive, this isn't a trader business. And since it's not a trader business, therefore, it wouldn't be rescued by you know, the idea that, you know, deductions allowed are 162 for a trader business other than a trader business, you know, operated by the individual as an employee, that that wouldn't capture this. So I, I think there's a problem here. And maybe you could get a court to look around that, but I think it's going to be difficult. But I do think this was their strongest view. I like I said, I don't like the concurrence and what it says, but let's go. Well, they tried a second route though and said, they say, oh no, 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 it reduces gross income, they're saying. Um, and they're saying, no, no, you're confusing matters. Deductions that you use in arriving at AGI, you know, do essentially, they, they, they reduce gross income. So to itemize deductions and getting to taxable income. But gross income is considering positive numbers that are included, not negative numbers, deductions, which is what this represents that you're able to, you know, take against that income on the return. So unlike 108 or even the 1031 exchange, we're not excluding income. We're rather using deductions after we have determined what income is includable. So this one, and I, I do have the same issue. I don't see this, this particular theory being very strong at all. And frankly, it looks like the taxpayers thought, yeah, this is kind of a long shot because they emphasize the first one as their argument. Now, the concurring opinion arrived at the same result, but in a different fashion. And I'll tell you right up front, I don't like the concurring opinion. I, I think it's got some major flaws. You know, I like the taxpayer's alternative theory better than the concurring opinion, right? Now, in this case, the judge who wrote this said, since 1A3B didn't itself provide the answer, you had to look outside the IRA, IRC to find your answer. Now, I understand we have to look outside the subsection 183, right? But 
I think the judge then makes a jump that doesn't to me make sense as to why that other place we would find the answer could not itself be in the code. You know, because I think that totally misunderstands the structure of 62, 63, 67. They don't make sense because most deductions don't tell us where to put them on the 1040. They don't say that this is an itemized deduction. They don't say that, oh, this is a business deduction, you know, or a basically an above the line deduction, or, you know, this is an exclusion from income. You know, for the most part, exclusions tend to say they're exclusions, but other types don't. So it's not very often going to find a deduction that is self-defining and says this goes above the line. Right. In fact, I don't really, I can't think of one write off that says that. That we're an above the line deduction. Rather, they all depend on 62 to get them there. But if you bought this theory, every one of those, every deduction in the code would in theory be up for argument about whether Congress intended to be above the line or below the line. I agree with the majority here that section 63 answers the question. Right. You don't need uh, to do this. You know, you don't need to have the other structures. You know, the question's answered. It found that now why this got the same result, though, was the Tax Court and Jobs Act conference report listed 183 deductions as miscellaneous itemized deductions. And this said to, to them, said, aha, there's our outside source of authority. I have some problems with that as authority, too. And by the way, I should say in the case I mentioned, right, the one we talked about where, you know, if the law is clear, that's where you stop. Specifically, we were told there that you don't go, that committee reports are to be ignored. There are various reasons why we don't like committee reports, not the least of which is Congress doesn't really vote on them. And they certainly aren't transmitted to the president for consideration as to whether to sign the bill. Right? It doesn't matter. The president doesn't sign the conference report. The president signs the law as written. That's the text that the president signs. So there's here. Right now, I don't like this by this logic. All of those other sections are irrelevant, right? They'd never matter because they don't really define any deduction. So they'd be totally irrelevant. And virtually no IRC provision granting a deduction states where to deduct, where, where you deduct it, where they rely on those provisions we talked about earlier, right? Okay. So that's it. And also, I have a key question. The years in question here when they claimed these deductions were before the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. That's why it was a 2% exclusion issue and not just the full-blown 67G means. Again, obviously it didn't matter either way for them because 2% was too, was too high a bar for them to clear. But why would a Congress that was not the one that passed this law, that didn't actually amend, right, 183, didn't touch it, why would that Congress, decades later, be able to tell us about the intent of the Congress that put 183 in the code? I mean, that, that would give huge power to every Congress to just start talking about anything in committee reports and then say, ah, there it is, congressional intent, we've got it. I, I, I don't see that actually works there. And I really don't see that Congress was really, really intending even to discuss 1A3 openly, except just, you know, they were discussing the impact of 67G, and it didn't occur to them there was a question as where those were deductible. Final case we're looking at this week is a case of Tracy versus Commissioner. Task Court Summary Opinion 2023-20 came down May 30th. Now, this was an elderly attorney that was attempting to shut down his law firm. Okay? He had huge problems. We'll talk about these in a second, but he had numerous illnesses, infirmities, and he was having to care at the time this was going on for his terminally ill spouse who later passed away. Right. So, I mean, there was a lot going on in this guy's life at this time. And that's the reason he was shutting down his law firm. Right. He was in his late 80s, uh, mid to late 80s, and he was shutting down the law firm. So in that law firm, another attorney was really handling most of his client work. Again, you know, he, he was available for consultation. But he really wasn't, he had enough other issues. He really wasn't day-to-day -day in practice. And so this other attorney, he, you know, he brought this attorney in to ensure these problems got taken care of for his clients to make sure that they were handled properly. He had an ethical obligation to do so, and he did so. And he had an administrative assistant who was handling all the administrative issues, including payroll tax compliance, payment issues, communicating with the outside accountant to get all the taxes filed that need to be filed. 
Okay. Now, at the time this case was decided today, he's 92 years old at the time when he was, um, you know, the, the, these two years when these were missed, he was 87 to 88 years old, right? And closing his law practice. Now he had been in practice for approximately 60 years. And the only times he missed filing his payroll tax returns were from September 30, 2017 through June 30, 2019, as we said. So he has these failure to payments during failure to pay during this time period. Now, I mean, all the bad stuff that happened to him. He was a Navy veteran. He had had a hearing loss and a back injury that worsened with time. So he's considered disabled. He was nearly deaf. He had significant difficulties with his balance. He suffered joint disease in his hip, knees, and hips, which were in poor condition and needed replacing, but had been replaced. He had atrial fibrillation, hypertension, and cardiopulmonary disease. Um, yeah, he had a lot going on, right? Uh, as he took steps to close his law practice, his assistance of more than 25 years helped him in his daily business operations, while another attorney substantially worked his cases. In addition, he relied on a part-time aid for his daily living activities, including grocery shopping, errands, laundry, cooking, and cleaning. Okay. In essence, he wasn't able to do a whole lot. And at the same time, he was caring for his dying wife of 55 years. That was consuming his time. He, you know, that itself had to basically wipe out his time. So this is the situation we're facing in this case. Now, the court notes, as an attorney, an ethical obligation to his remaining clients. He could not simply close his practice and walk away. Say, yeah, that case we filed, eh. You know, you ain't got somebody else to deal with it. I, I can't help you anymore. Tough, tough luck. Right? So his assistants and that attorney kept the law practice going. He did not do the bulk of work. He was available. If necessary, he was consulted, is what the assumption is. But most of the work was done by the other attorney. Uh, and his assistant would take care of most things going on. Now, one of the assistant's duties was to communicate with the tax preparer and handle employment taxes on the petitioner's, the attorney's behalf. However, uh, you know, she was aware that the in, that they had virtually, they had very, very little income, declining income. They had all of these expenses paying for this other attorney. And she was fearful of losing her job because obviously this was a money, this was sucking money out left and right. And, you know, at some point would the attorney dismiss her? You know, she was concerned she'd be dismissed because they had no money to pay her. And she was afraid of losing her job. So she didn't perform her duties for payroll tax, employment taxes. She decided that she would save that money and that would give them money to pay the other expenses. Obviously, that's not a smart idea. Uh, obviously, she hadn't heard of, you know, uh, basically being able to get stuck with the, you know, trust fund penalties for finding that she and she herself could determine if they had been paid. Uh, I don't think she understood that either, that she was personally now probably could have been on the hook for this had they not been paid. They were paid. That was taken care of, right? Now, he was not aware she had shirked her duties. Upon learning, as soon as he learned about the fact there were unfiled returns and unpaid taxes, he filed the return, paid the taxes. He did not pay the penalties, though. He asked the IRS to abate them. He knew there were penalties. He knew they were due and they should be abated. The IRS granted a partial assessment of failure to pay, but then they charged him for failure to pay for other, you know, the other part of the failure to pay they assessed against him, as well as every failure to file penalty. Was He went out against him. Now, these penalties are covered by 6651A1 and 2, right? A1 covers failure to file, A2 covers failure to pay. But both of them say they can be waived if the taxpayer can establish the failure to either file or pay the taxes, whichever penalty we're looking at here, was due to reasonable cause and was not due to willful neglect. Okay. And Internal Revenue Manual, section 20.1.1.3.2.2.1, I love that which was last updated in November of 2011, applies to claims of reasonable cause due to death, serious illness, or unavoidable absence. And that's what the IRS started looking at for this purpose. You know, so did he have reasonable cause for not making the payments? Okay. The IRS denied most of the relief, as you already mentioned. 
And there are some key factors here that honestly normally result in a taxpayer not being granted relief. They're either showing as not having reasonable cause or they show willful neglect. Generally, if you claim illness, you know, is what caused you to be failure to file the return or failure to pay the tax, well, the IRS says, you know, it could be true. You know, maybe you're deathly ill and you were in intensive care for nine months and that explains why you couldn't pay the payroll taxes. You weren't there to do it. You weren't able to do it and you weren't, and you weren't letting anybody visit you or do anything. You were in a coma for the nine months. Okay, fine, we'll grant it. But if you continue to operate your business normally, even though you may have some disease, you might be going through chemotherapy, you might be going through any other sort of treatment, so you have this serious disease, but you're still operating the business as normal, that's going to argue against the waiver because, you know, if you could still go to court and argue cases, it'd be the argument, you know, you're still able to draft all these contracts and get them out and get them billed, uh, you could have gotten the 941s filed. That's how they normally look at it. Um, also, if you do have a staff person, you have somebody who you decide to put in charge of this, fine, attorneys could do that. You're supposed to supervise the parties, realizing that there is an obligation to make sure they're doing their job. And one of her jobs was to get payroll taxes filed. So he should have been glancing in to make sure she was really doing that job. He had a responsibility in that area, right? And since he was the only owner, it's like, that's it. Management has that responsibility and you are the member of management. So you're responsible for that. And also, if, if you say, well, it's not my fault because I had my assistant do it, delegating authority generally doesn't work for you in getting out of penalties, right? You know, it doesn't, you know, like I said, you don't need to file the, the return, maybe. You can ask somebody to do that. But to determine if it had been filed is something you can do very quickly and it doesn't really take a lot of work. So, you know, why weren't you checking on those things? So honestly, looking at those three factors, all of which at least initially appear to be issues, the law firm was still operating, right? Um, you know, he did supervise her work, even though it was his assistant, and he delegated everything to her and ignored, you know, what was going on, which is kind of related to the second. So those are all reasons why normally you'd end up losing. You wouldn't get the waiver. But, you know, in this case, as we look at this, the tax court found the specific circumstances here explained those issues and excused the work, right? First, he wasn't really working at the business, right? The business was open. They were hiring and basically hemorrhaging funds to pay counsel, other counsel to complete the work due to ethical considerations. So he wasn't down, he was unable to do the work. He wasn't doing even the law firm work. So he was not the one ensuring the law firm work actually got done. Went down there doing it. He had used the same system for 60 years to handle this. His assistants had always taken care of, you know, communicating with the outside accounting firm, getting the payroll taxes paid, getting the forms filed, getting all that done, right? That had always been his assistant's job. And for 60 years, it had worked perfectly. They had never missed one. So that was there. And they said it's reasonable for him to believe it would still keep functioning in this situation. And the main reason he didn't supervise her work was due to his many infirmities and challenges. That's why the work wasn't supervised. That's the real issue here. So as the court noted, they found he was diligent in exercising ordinary business care and prudence. He had systems in place to ensure tax compliance that had worked for 60 years, right? It was reasonable and not willful neglect for him to trust his system's continued reliability. And they said it was not his reliance, not his delegation to the assistant, but his inability to supervise her due to his failing health and advanced age and, you know, the responsibilities to his wife who was dying that, you know, caused his failure to file, right? As soon as he was aware of the problem, he did act quickly to file the outstanding returns and basically later to pay the taxes as well, because the same basic rule comes into the taxes is, you know, it had failed to, failed him in the final years because he was unable to supervise his assistant properly. That was his problem. So bottom line, they said, despite the fact that by the, by the, basically by the book, this appears to be one, no, you deny it. In reality, this case does not justify denial. Now, 
First thing I'm going to tell you here, do not use this case and expect that your client, who is 40 years old in perfect health and just can't be bothered to look at the tax returns, right? And so didn't pay any attention when this person he'd hired, you know, didn't get out and get it filed. And, you know, he, and he'd known for like 10 years he'd been doing this, that every so often these people weren't filing, things weren't getting done, etc. that had failed multiple times. Don't expect that person to get out of this, right? We're going to have trouble there. But it does remind us uh, to argue for why the taxpayer's case is different from what might be the sources the IRS is attempting to rely upon. In essence, when we talk about things like reasonable cause, it is facts and circumstances. And we know the criteria the code provides. And even though, let's say, the IRM, which is just a basic guide to the service, may suggest your client's not going to carry this, that's not binding on the court. And it's really not binding on the IRS, right? You have a situation that is unique, that is different, and that was not contemplated by the discussion in the IRM. You should be able to carry that position. And certainly, if you get to court, the court's not going to worry as much about what's in the IRM if it appears the IRM is not reasonable given the situation the court's looking at. That's going to be the key issue here. Well, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of June the 5th. Current Federal Tax Developments, as always, is brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. Um, be, be sure to pay attention to us next week when we'll talk about whatever comes up in the coming weeks in taxes. Uh, and I've got some road trips coming up the following week. So we'll see how the update goes that week. I guess I'll have to see if I can ride on a plane. Uh, but I've got, got, a, got a little trip out of town after doing two days of sessions in Arizona. So I'll be heading out of town for that point. So it could be interesting because I'll be out of town for three days. Uh, but we'll see how it goes. The next week could be interesting. Just warning, if it gets delayed there, don't be surprised. Um, otherwise, you know, I do still look in on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, and Washington. And I also, you know, take a look at what Idaho posts So, on their discussion board. So if you're a member of one of those societies, you post something, I see it, I may decide to respond. Otherwise, like I said, we'll see you back here next week with the newest updates on current federal tax developments.